As you're taking your seat, you can grab your Bibles and open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you are new here today, it, it would be maybe helpful for you to know that we are a church who loves the Word of God uh, very much. In fact, I hope this morning um, our entire service, and even for you who are a part of our church family, it reminds you of, of what grounds us and what guides us in this life. Um, we have, just consider for a, a moment this morning, we have um, prayed the Word of God. We have sung the Word of God, and now we will hear the Word of God, and I trust it will be our delight and desire to respond to the Word of God in even greater ways. I want to begin by just asking you a simple question this morning, and that is this, how would you define the good life? We are a people who long to live the good life. Our culture has many ideas of what it means to live the good life, and maybe it's helpful just to pause for a moment and to ask yourself that simple question. What do I believe it means to live the good life? How would I define living the good life? In his book, um, David Patchell Evans writes these words. The title of the book is actually called Living the Good Life, Life with the subtitle, Health and Success for You. He writes these words, I wrote this book because I want to encourage you to live the good life. What is the good life, he says? It's about health. It's about feeling at home in your body. It's about allowing your body to become the best it can be. It's the feeling of energy and alertness you feel when you're in good shape. It's about the confidence with which you meet life challenges. It's knowing that you can achieve far more than you ever dreamed. It's the sense of yourself as a body, mind, heart, and soul, a whole being, vibrant and alive. That's quite a stirring statement. But let me ask you this question. Is it true? Is that the definition of a good life? Is a good life dependent upon the condition of your body, your physical body? Because if it's not, let's be honest, many of us in here uh, will find it impossible to live the good life. And even if you're living the good life for the moment, it's just a matter of time before age kicks in or injuries kick in or health concerns become a problem and you can no longer live the good life that he promises you. What if you live in a third world country? What if every day you wake up not knowing if today you are going to get a meal in your belly? You see, sometimes our understanding and definitions of the good life are so skewed by the world that we live in or the cultural context in which we find ourselves that we need to pause and actually consider how the world's understanding has infiltrated our own understanding. Many of us, I think, have bought into this kind of thinking in believing that the good life is something that this world in and of itself can actually offer to us. A theologian by the name of Kevin Van Hooser says this, certain segments of the church have succumbed to cultural conditioning about the good life or what counts as success. You see, according to the Bible... Living the good life is not about the kind of life you can make for yourself, but rather it's about the kind of life you can find only in Jesus Christ. It's about true life, a life with God at the center, 
a life lived with God and a life lived for God. You see, God determines what the good life actually is. And as hard as we may search for it apart from him, we can never truly find it because it is found only in him. God determines what the good life is because he is the creator and giver of life. And so this morning, we need to recognize that our understanding of the good life must not be shaped by the world around us, but by the word of God. Peter, addressing the the church who is, by the way, living in difficult times. And he addresses them about how to live the good life, even in the midst of persecution and even in the midst of oppression, even in the midst of suffering. He says, listen, the good life is something that is possible to have and enjoy even now, even in the midst of the most challenging of circumstances. He says these words in chapter 3, verse 8. You can follow along with me. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here Peter, as he even quotes from the Old Testament, is defining for us what it means to live the good life. And so we're going to look at that in three different parts this morning. First, notice this, living the good life requires exercising the love that defines us. Now, it's implied here that that the people people are writing to are, are those who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, those who consider themselves part of the community of faith. Peter, in effect, is writing to Christians, and that's actually the reason why many of them are suffering. They're in the current state that they're in. They're receiving oppression from the world around them. It's because of their commitment to Jesus Christ, and so Peter wants to come alongside the believers and say, listen, I know in a worldly sense, it seems like life is not good at all. But I want to remind you that the good life is found in connection with your relationship with the God who has saved you. And when you get your your heart and your mind and your eyes fixed there, you will be able to live this good life together in the way that God has called you to live it. And so he says these words, finally, and and, and that should remind us that he's kind of summing up a lot of what he's already been saying to the church of Jesus Christ. In many ways, this is a conclusion of all that he's written in chapter 2, 11, all the way through chapter 3, verse 7. All the way back in chapter 2, 11, you can look at it there with me. He reminds the the church, the people of God, who they actually are. He helps them to kind of ground themselves in this identity. Look what it says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God at the day of visitation. And in chapter 3, he's, he's gone on to tell us what it means to live in this world as a servant of Jesus Christ, in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's told us that this is really what it looks like to live the good life, but now he kind of comes alongside us, and instead of focusing on these different spheres of our lives in which we can model or display the gospel, he says, listen, here's what should be characteristic about all of you of the church of Jesus Christ at all times. And these things, if put into practice, are going to lead to you experiencing the good life that God has offered in the gospel. This life is meant to be compared and contrasted with the kind of life the world advocates for. The world says the good life is found in pursuing sin and selfishness. The world says the good life is found in possessions, in money, in materialism, in power. And here, Peter actually hits at some of the, the crucial characteristics that define the church and that lead us to experience greater joy here and now, to endure in, in a world that's often hostile to our faith. Notice he says, finally, all of you. He wraps his arms around us and he pulls us into this exhortation. It's helpful just to consider this for a moment, that God has not called us to live the Christian life on our own. God has brought us into a body, a family, a community, and he says, listen, in part, the way you experience the good life in the Christian life is not by living it on your own, it's by living it in community. There's a safety, there's a safeguard for us, there's a joy that's found in the context of relationships. And I just, I know this is, is already obvious to many of you, but we, we should understand this, that living life in the church and in relationships in general is not always easy. We don't kind of drift or slide into good, healthy relationships. We fight for them. You know, we're paddling upstream in many ways in our relationships. And that's why I, I use this, this word exercising because it implies this, this idea that's hard work. We're gonna have to get after what it means to enjoy this life together. This is who we must continually strive to be. These are the kind of commitments we are supposed to be making to one another as a family. He gives us essentially five commitments to make, five characteristics that should define us. He says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. But what might not be obvious to you is the kind of structure that Peter is using to help us understand how these things are supposed to operate in our community of faith. He uses a literary device known as a chiasm. Some of you, that's going to instantly trigger kind of your English background. Um, for some of you, you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay because it's on the screen behind me. I'm going to show you what it means. A chiasm comes from the, um, the, the Greek uh, letter of the alphabet, a chi, which is like an X, okay? 
And, and here's the sense of what's happening. It's like this. It's like the, 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 the framework is intended to show you that there's some parallel truths being highlighted, but they're really leading you towards a center which grounds everything. In other words, the center of the X is supposed to be the most important part, the thing that we ought to focus on. So I put it on the screen behind me here so you can see how Peter has structured um, this verse so we understand how this is supposed to operate. You see how unity of mind and a humble mind are supposed to be parallel. They, they nuance each other. He's explaining what he means, how this looks in the life of the church. Sympathy and, and a tender heart, they're so similar. A tender heart or compassion is the same idea. They, they work together, they're to be viewed together, and then right at the heart of it all, the thing that makes these things possible is this sense of brotherly love that we all embrace as the family of God. Now let's unpack this a little bit because there's a lot uh, in there that we need to understand and embrace. Harmony or unity of mind, harmony is another way of saying that. And a humble mind, you can consider this harmony and humility. They belong together and the primary reason is that harmony is disrupted, listen, by pride and self-assertion. We can't have unity we can't experience the blessings of togetherness where pride and self-assertion rule amongst us. Pride and self-assertion are the reason for so much division in our relationships, and they're the reason for so much division oftentimes in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. And healthy and strong relationships, they require this kind of thinking, that we are to uh, have a unity of mind or to think in the same way. To have one mind is not to have identical opinions about everything. It doesn't mean that we always agree on politics, on philosophy, on business, on food, on music, on leisure. This is not a call to uniformity. There is a, a beauty of, in the diversity in the body of Christ, but that diversity should never lead to division and it should never destroy the unity that God intends for the church to be experiencing. This uh, like-mindedness or unity can only come by imitating the humility of Jesus Christ. This is why um, right here we see unity of mind paired, paired with this idea of a humble mind. We look to Jesus as being the, the model and the example of what it means to be humble of mind. In fact, uh, Paul, he offers to us this picture of Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Look at what he says. He says, complete my joy by being, here's the same word, of the same mind. That's the exact same word that Peter uses. Having, look at this, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There it is again. You say, how, does this, how is this possible? Look at what he holds up as the example. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Can you see the key to understanding the, the way we fashion unity is found right here. Let each of us not look to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
There's a beautiful kind of deference here. There's a beautiful sense of looking out for one another here. It's not just about me. It's not just about my wants and my needs and my preferences. This is about us as a family. So much division in the church is caused by pride and preferences. What people fight over in the church is astounding. I know each of you probably have stories about what you've seen happen in in other churches, maybe even in this church, the kind of of divisions that occur. There's a a, a pastor, and he's a a writer. His name's Tom Rayner. He he did a bit of a survey, and he was trying to figure out, you know, what's caused divisions in many churches, so he kind of did a tweet survey, and he said he had so many people tweeting back to him all kinds of crazy stories about what caused division in the church that he made a list of them. He has 25 kind of silly things that cause division in churches, and I just want to read a few to you just so you can get a sense of how crazy people like us can be sometimes. He says this, here's, here's, let me give you one, one kind of thing that caused division in some ways. These are actual things, okay, that actually happened. An argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. How about this one? A church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. I vote it should. You probably vote it shouldn't. How about this? A petition to have all church staff clean shaven. Oops. How about this one? A dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. That brings a whole new meaning to no shoes, no shirt, no service. Sorry, that was bad. It's really bad. I apologize. How about this one? Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. Now, this is legitimate. This is okay. Okay, I think this is something that's <laughs> In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. And listen to this. Members left the church over this. Uh, Tom Rayner, this is Tom, he says this. He says, perhaps they started a new church, the Right Blend Fellowship. That's bad. <laughs> This is, this is, I'm not making this stuff up, okay? An argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal, okay? And again, he says this, only if it's balanced with angel food cake for dessert. A disagreement over the, using the term pot luck instead of pot blessing. Yeah, some of you are like, oh, yeah. This is... This is maybe my favorite. A church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server and it looked too much like liqueur. There are a lot of really, really silly reasons people cause division. And I hope you can see that these kind of things so often are motivated by sinful desires or selfish desires or pride and preferences, and these are things that sadly divide many churches. It's helpful for us to consider the unity of the church and the way that Christ calls us to experience unity and and the things we hold tightly to, and 
I'm going to put a quote up on the screen by Edmund Clowney. Here's what he says. I found this so helpful. He says this, when the truth of Christ is affirmed in arrogance, it is denied. The like-mindedness, he says, that Peter requires manifests the mind and love of Christ. It is precisely willingness to, willingness to submit ourselves to others for Christ's sake that undercuts the misunderstandings and hostilities that can divide the Christian community. That willingness flows from the love of Christ. You see, Christ is our example. You know, in our church, we've always said things like this, and we still hold to this. We believe this is true. We need to major on the majors. We need to minor on the minors, and in all things, love. From the very beginning, we said um, a statement like this, in the major's conviction, in the minor's tolerance, but in all things, love. And you need to hear me clearly on this. I'm not saying there aren't things that are, are worth fighting over. There are. We, we do not mess around when it comes to the primary doctrines of the Christian faith. When it comes to um, the, the things that the Bible says so clearly are necessary for salvation, we will fight to the death for these things, literally to the death for these things. But when it comes to areas of Scripture where there's maybe not as much clarity and where there's legitimate difference in interpretations and division, I mean, we just have a lot of charity and a lot of tolerance, and we need to be incredibly gracious with one another. And in all things, regardless of whether it's a major issue, a minor issue, or something way further down the line, we need to express ourselves with this sense of love. We need to be actually looking out. This is what he's getting at. We need to be looking out for the interest of others, not simply fighting for what we want. This is so helpful because so many of our, you can just take this and apply this in other areas of your life, right? Apply this to your marriage relationship. How many of your uh, fights and arguments in your marriage are a result of your selfishness and your own sin? I would argue all of them. And so would James in James chapter 4. And so this is so helpful just to see how we can love each other and such humility. And you'll notice the next thing that Peter draws our attention to, he, he says, sympathy and a tender heart. Again, another word for tender heart is compassion. These two things are so closely related, they're actually incredibly difficult to distinguish from each other. Sympathy is the ability to feel what another feels whether in joy or in sorrow. And the scriptures call us to this kind of sympathy um, all over the place. Just consider what Paul says in Romans 12, 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Or Paul says this, if one member suffers, he's speaking of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice. Again, you can just see the humility here. You can see the love of one another, the desire for the other's good, the desire to, to be uh, so sweet and tender with one another. And you see, to sympathize is to enter into the experience of others as much as is humanly possible. And then as we sympathize, as we experience that, it is to act upon those feelings in the appropriate way. You know, Jesus, again, is held out as the model for us in Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus sympathizes with us in our weakness. The author of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he is without sin. He knows our struggles. 
and he has therefore a heart of compassion towards us. Compassion is really the, the emotion or the feeling expressed in tenderness. It's the emotion or feeling expressed in a generosity and a warmth. In the body of Christ, we seek each other's good, but we also seek to enter into each other's needs and concerns. You know, this is one of the, the things that we see regularly happening in our church, in our small group ministry. So much of what we call mutual ministry takes place in the context of these kind of relationships where, where you're getting to know one another, where you're investing in each other's lives, you're hearing about each other's struggles and difficulties. I, can't, I could stand up here and I could rattle off testimony after testimony of people in, in this church who have sympathized and had so much compassion on, on many who are, they are getting to know and see who are hurting and supplying their needs and caring for them in some of the most uh, deepest, hardest, painful moments of their life. And doing it so well. I would just commend you as a church family, as a pastor, to watch this is a remarkable thing. To know that the body of Christ takes this seriously and serves one another so faithfully is, is a remarkable thing. It's an act of God's kindness, and I can just, I, can, I would thank you for the way you were serving and loving each other, and, and my exhortation to you would simply be this, to just keep excel still more. God is so pleased with this. You are so Christ-like when you're doing this. Some of you are missing out on this. Like some of you are hurting alone because you're not kind of woven into the fabric and life of this church. You don't have any meaningful relationships here. You're not investing in anybody and nobody's investing in you. You know, and this isn't to take shots at anybody, but you know, like come in late or during the worship and leave early. Can I just tell you this? Listen, that is not the way that Christianity is supposed to be lived in the context of the community of faith. It's not supposed to be like that. This is the place where we are to be known and when we are knowing others, and we're serving one another and loving and cherishing these relationships. And so some of you, you, just, you, need to, you need to be told this. You need to hear this. You need to take a step of faith and jump into some relationships here. You need to sacrifice some things in your life that are taking precedent that you have chosen as a priority in your life that are not allowing you to be as invested in the community of faith as you ought to be. And you need to be willing to make some hard decisions and cut some of those things out of your life so that you can say yes to the better thing that God has offered to you in the body of Christ. Some of you are, are invested in relationships and you're, you're growing and you're doing this and maybe you're still asking, how can I do this better? I'm so glad you asked. Let me give you one thing you can do better. You know, we get told a lot by people who visit here that we're a very hospitable church and I'm so thankful to the Lord for that. Hospitality is a demonstration of the gospel. That's our objective, by the way. Our hospital, we're not just trying to be friendly for the sake of being friendly. When we are friendly to people who walk in these doors, here's what we're saying to you. God has been friendly to us through Jesus Christ. God has flung his arms wide open to us in the gospel. He has welcomed us so warmly and embraced us. You see, we have experienced the hospitality of God. That's why we express the hospitality to one another that we do. But here's what I would say to many of you. Um, you can do more in the area of hospitality. There are some of you in here who have never had people into your own home. 
And I would just encourage you, listen, hospitality is one of the greatest ways you can meet others', others needs. And not only that, it's one of the greatest ways you can get to know those who you are doing life with. You can develop those relationships in a unique way when you have them in your home and you serve them a meal in very practical ways. You bless them. And so I would just encourage many of you, and maybe you know, we're in this closed, kind of closed-off culture that we live in, having people into our homes is often very unique these days. What I would suggest is that the Bible says hospitality in the body of Christ should be the norm, not the exception. Some of you are exceptional at this, by the way. I'm looking across here and I'm seeing so many of you who are so good at this. Some of you just need to work harder at this because it doesn't come as naturally to you. Um, I, I, did t- I talked to somebody who had been in our church for uh, 10 years, and they said they've had so many people into their home, and they've been invited into one person's home one time over the last seven years. And then we're complaining about it, but it just reminded me, listen, sometimes we need to be encouraged um, to actually take some steps of faith here and obedience and be a blessing to others. I just encourage you, um, start that process now. The final thing that he's driving us towards at the very center, I've mentioned it already, but this idea of brotherly love. And you see how that really is at the center. It's the epicenter of, of all of this. He's the way, the reason we can be compassionate and sympathize with one another. The reason we can, we can be so humble and fight for unity of mind is because we have this familial love together. We understand that we are all blood-bought children All of us adopted into the family of God. All of us rescued from our sins. All of us united through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been made brothers and sisters. And we ought to treat each other as such. We ought to love each other as such. We don't quit on each other. We don't give up on each other. We fight for each other. Jesus unites us in such a a powerful way. One of the greatest evidences of genuine Christian faith is a warm love for others, for brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's what Peter has already said to us in this letter. In 1 Peter 1, verse 22, he says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another, he says, earnestly from a pure heart. In chapter 2, verse 17, he's already told us this. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. Scriptures are filled with these kind of commands. Jesus himself said that by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Can you see how we are called to reflect Christ in all of this? the one who loves us, the one who sympathizes with our weakness, the one who has had compassion on us, the one who humbled himself that he might unite us to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. He has served us. He has put our good uh, in his his fleshly sense ahead of his own good. He sacrificed his own well-being. He sacrificed his own life so that we may find the good life that is offered only in him. We too must exercise the love of Christ that is intended to define who we are as the body of Christ. 
This is how we enjoy the good life together here and now. Secondly, he says, here's how you can enjoy the good life. It requires employing the logic that drives us. There is a kind of logic that Peter wants to put before us to help us understand how the Christian life is supposed to work. He says this in verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, Peter has focused in verse 8 our attention on how we operate in the community of faith, and, and the vast majority, if not all of the commentators that I read said the same thing about verse 9 here, is that this verse is intended to remind us and teach us how we were supposed to respond, especially to those outside of the community of faith. In other words, how do we respond to unbelievers? For sure, these things would also be true in the context of, of the church family, but really what he's getting at here is when we are persecuted by unbelievers, when we are oppressed by the world around us, how should we respond? Should we take matters into our own hands? Should we execute justice here and now? He gives us the answer. And what he does essentially, listen, he simply reminds us of the logic of the gospel he says, here's how the gospel is intended to be employed in your life. I'm going to throw this up on the screen here as well. Let me just show you this pattern. Um, we have here the pattern of behavior first. He shows us and he calls us to this pattern of behavior that we're supposed to um, embrace and employ in our lives. He says very clearly, here's what it looks like. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Bless. In chapter 2, verse 23, he has, again, held up Christ as the example for us. He has said this, when he was reviled, look at this, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The word that's used in 2.23 is the same root word here for insult or being reviled. And we're supposed to have Jesus in the front of our minds as we consider that sometimes as we follow Jesus, we're going to be treated just like Jesus was treated. Paul in Romans 12.17 says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. He reminds us, too, there that vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. In 1 Corinthians 4.12, Paul says this, And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. You see the context, and, and all of these quotations, by the way, is when we're reviled and persecuted by those outside of the church. And perhaps most important of all is the words of Jesus Christ. He echoes the same thoughts in Luke chapter 6, 5, or 20, um, 8 through 29, Matthew as well, gives us the same sense here. But he says this, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, again, get the context here. 
The idea is this, when you suffer for Jesus Christ, when people want to mock you or humiliate you or persecute you for following Jesus Christ, there is a godly, biblical, gospel response that is to define us, and it is not to hit back twice as hard. So what does he mean by bless? Well, I think he means exactly what Jesus has just told us here. You can leave this on the screen just for another moment. It for sure means we're not allowed to pray in precatory prayers. It means we're not allowed to take matters into our own hands. It means that we would want God's favor. Listen, listen, this is so important. It means that we would want God's favor and blessing to rest upon even our greatest enemies and the greatest enemies of the cross. You see, what Peter is getting at here is that we should have a longing for the salvation of those who persecute Jesus. And wasn't it Jesus who, as he was suffering on the cross, looked at those who put him there and literally said the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is to be characteristic of us as the church of Jesus Christ. This is so challenging, it's so hard, and yet it's so important, but I want you to follow the logic here. You say, you say why should I do this? Well, he tells us, here's, here's the logic here, because for this, you have been called. That's what you've been called to. You have been called, listen, church, just hear this. You have been called to represent and reflect Jesus Christ as you find your rest in Jesus Christ here and now. Your rest is not found in your circumstances. God knows that's generally impossible. Your rest is found in treasuring Jesus Christ, in the hope and freedom you have in Jesus Christ. And as you treasure that, you reflect and you represent Christ in a proper way. This is the calling on all of our lives. It reminds us, listen, that we are saved with a purpose. We are a church that is on mission. We want to see the gospel advance. We want to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and matured people multiplied all to the glory of God. You see, that's why. That's why we respond to persecution the way we do. That's why we respond to oppression and humiliation the way we do, because we long for them to see in us a picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one, listen, who is merciful and compassionate toward us when we were his enemies. We're simply telling the world, this is what God can do for you. He can be merciful to you. He can be kind to you the same way that he has been merciful and kind to me. It's like Stephen in Acts chapter 7, the first martyr for the church. What a powerful example. He prays for those around him as he is literally having stones hurled at his body and his head. And he prays this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And guess what? A young Pharisee named Saul was standing by holding the coats of the men who were casting these stones. And the Lord, who stood at the right hand of God, received Stephen into his presence and heard his prayers. And God would miraculously save this young persecutor of the church named Saul. And he would transform him into the powerful proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ named Paul. 
And look at this last bit of logic that he offers to us. What ultimately drives this, that we might obtain a blessing. Literally, the word for obtain there is inherit. That we might inherit blessing, in other words, he's saying. It's the same word that Peter has used in describing in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4, the inheritance that awaits us. You know, the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's, that's the same sense here. In the Old Testament, the idea of, of obtaining or inheriting the blessing was referring to the promised land. It was something that was constantly placed before the people of God. Be faithful as your sojourners and exiles, as you're wandering in the wilderness, as you find yourself in a place that's not your home. Keep in mind that there is a blessing reserved for you, that those who are faithful to the Lord and who are obedient, they will inherit the blessing. The promised land always pointed to this idea of, of inheriting eternal life. Life in the presence of God, life in the place where God dwells in his glory. It refers in a sense to this eternal life that is already here but not yet full. That the life that has been initiated by the Lord Jesus Christ and the giving of the Spirit of God but not yet fully consummated and will one day be when the Savior returns. We get, in a sense, the, the blessings of eternal life here and now, but we still long for and await the full and final beauty and fulfillment of the blessing. You know, Peter is constantly trying to remind us, church, listen, this world is not our home. This world is not our home. We don't live for this world. We are living for another home. I, I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. That's the sense the church is always supposed to live with. I'm not home yet. I get a taste of home here with the, the people of God and the presence of God. I get a taste of that here and now, but there is a day coming where the fullness of the promises of God and the final blessing, the inheritance, listen, of the future uh, will come my way. This reward is waiting for me, and this reward is driving me here and now to live for him. And I know, listen, as a result of that, though, no matter what I face here and now, no matter how great the persecution, the suffering, the pain, and the sorrow I have, something greater that awaits me and I can press on in light of that. The author of Hebrews, he gives us this, this powerful picture of the same truth. In Hebrews chapter 10, Verse 32, listen to what it says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. He's talking to a church that has had to suffer for being the church. Sometimes, listen to this, being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you, I love this, listen to this, for you had compassion on those in prison 
And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves, listen to this, had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, he says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then in chapter 11, he gives us these examples of people who did just this. So let me just give you one of them. Let me just remind you of Abraham. It says this in, Abraham, in uh, uh, 11 verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. That's the inheritance. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Listen to this. This is the powerful part because guess what? Abraham never received in his lifetime the promised land, did he? He was a sojourner and an exile all the days of his life looking forward to the promise. Listen to what it says. This is powerful. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. You see what he's saying? Abraham knew the land was not the ultimate destination. The land pointed to the final destination. The place where God's rule, God's power, and God's presence would dominate in its fullness. He's not saying, by the way, that we are earning eternal life. That's not what he's saying at all. He's calling us to evidence our eternal life. You see, enduring to the end is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That there's a certain behavior that must accompany our belief. The Bible has no category for somebody who simply claims the name of Jesus but never exhibits any of the fruit of Jesus. There's no category. The category for that is this, unbeliever. But the follower of Jesus Christ manifest the life of Christ, not perfectly, but yes, there is a trajectory of their life that continues to display that they are truly followers of Jesus Christ. Church, you just need to hear this. One of the greatest and most defining marks of a follower of Jesus Christ is their ability to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. And those that do prove that they truly are sons and daughters of the King. This is the logic that he calls us to employ in our lives. There is a pattern of behavior. There's the purpose of belief. And then there is the promise of blessing that drives us forward. And finally, he says this to the church. You want to be living the good life? And it requires embracing the Lord that delights us. These last verses really simply illustrate exactly what I have just said and, and what Peter has just said. He quotes from Psalm 34, which is a psalm written by David, and he quotes specifically verses 12 through 16, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see what he's saying here? He's saying this, listen, if, if you want to inherit the blessing, you need to keep being faithful to God. You need to prove that you are truly a child of God. 
You need to have nothing to do with sin. You know, cast off constantly. Cast off sin. Pursue good. Pursue peace. Pursue the gospel. Psalm 34 is, is a psalm where David is in great distress. The circumstances of life are not good. And what we see in Psalm 34 is that David clings to the Lord. He, he looks around, his circumstances are awful, but he says this, is like, regardless of what I have in terms of my circumstances, I have the Lord. In fact, he begins in verse 1, just listen, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 8 is something that Peter's already quoted. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Listen, this is salvation language. And it's a reminder that those who are saved continually fall back into this kind of behavior, this kind of refuge. I cling to the Lord. I'm not going to leave the Lord when my situation changes, when things get difficult, when I experience pain and tragedy. I'm going to cling to the Lord because He, and He alone is where I find my greatest delight. And it was a training tool. Verse 11, O come, uh, ch- o, ch- come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And here's where he quotes, right here, 12 through 16. It's just, just vital to note that this psalm focuses on suffering and the Lord's deliverance to those who are afflicted. The point of this psalm and this text and the way that Peter uses it is that the Lord's favor is on those who live in a righteous way. In other words, he will bless them with the inheritance promised, with the future life of the age to come. The hearing here of their prayers that he speaks of, it reveals that they are truly members of God's people. God hears the prayers of his children. Conversely, just consider this for a moment, the Lord will turn away his face from those who practice evil. Which means this, listen, they will not inherit the promise. They instead will receive God's punishment. In fact, in the very next line of Psalm 34, which Peter doesn't cite here, but it's there. If you go back, we we can see what Peter is talking about. He says that those who are wicked will be destroyed by God. So you have those whose, whose cry is heard by God. That is those who are truly saved, who demonstrate their salvation by how they live their life. And then you have those who refuse to demonstrate their who can't demonstrate their salvation because they're not truly saved. And in the end, what they inherit is the judgment of God. See, what the psalm reveals to us is the picture of someone who has placed their trust, their faith, their hope in the Lord, of someone who clings to the Lord as their greatest joy and delight. When everything is stripped away, 
It is the presence of the Lord that remains. That, listen church, that is how you live the good life now. By holding fast to the Lord in faithful obedience, believing the promise of God. And here's the good news in this. Listen, the eternal life that awaits breaks into the present and fills this life with good days. It is always a good day when you're living in obedience to the Lord and the King of the universe. Amen, church? Those who practice the love of compassion, those who refrain from speaking evil, those who pursue peace, they're blessed by the Lord. His eyes are on them. He hears their prayers. So here's the question. Maybe for some of you this morning, this may be the most important question that you wrestle with this morning. It is, I guarantee, the most important question you can face in your whole life. Have you actually embraced the Lord? Have you truly? Look at your life. Look at how you live. Look how you respond to suffering and persecution. Or maybe just look at your life. Are you, are you in any way, shape, or form living for Jesus? Is your life looking like Christ in any way? If it's not, here's what I would just say to you. God calls you this day to choose this day whom you will serve. To abandon self-service. To abandon pursuing the world. And instead, to pursue the peace that he offers to you in the gospel. Today, if you hear his voice. Today. Embrace the Lord and find today the best day of all. The best day for you right now is right now in embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. A good day, listen, in the world's eyes, is trouble-free. Feet up, on the dock, sun shining in the face, right? A good day is all about good circumstances to the world, but a good day for the believer, listen, listen to this, it may be imprisonment and beatings for following Jesus. It may be sitting in a prison cell like Paul and Silas singing hymns and thanking God for his goodness to them. It is always looking forward to the inheritance that is promised to those who are in Christ Jesus. The inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, the good life is not ultimately about this life, But you can taste the good life now. You can taste the good life now only when you believe the best life is yet to come. So church, let us exercise the love that defines us. Let us employ the logic that drives us. And let us embrace together the Lord that delights us. Enjoying the good life now while we eagerly await the fullness of the good life that is to come. Father in heaven, we bow before you, thanking you for your goodness to us. You are a good, kind, gracious, compassionate, loving Father. And you have sent your good and perfect Son who shows us what it means to be humble and compassionate. He shows us your love in the most brilliant of ways by laying his life down in such humility that all those who look to him might find everlasting life, who, who might know the good life here and now, the life that's found only in surrender and submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ, but who look forward to the great life that is yet to come, the, the life that we will inherit by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. 
And Father, I pray now that you would remind us, regardless of what we are facing, God, you are so worth the costs. It is so worth it to follow you, Lord, in every season and circumstance of our life. So I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters and for my own heart, Lord, that you would remind us now as we respond and as we sing, God, that you are so worthy of our, of our devotion to you. Help us, Lord, we pray. We need your help. We need the power of your spirit working mightily in us to free us from sin and to hold us fast, to cling to you, to cling to the truth of the gospel, to live a life of faithfulness and obedience that brings you greater and greater glory. Help us, we pray. Make this our delight. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.